Tonight we're in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, and we're going to be talking about Jesus as Lord. And I want to start by just sharing with you uh, a little passage out of uh, G.K. Chesterton's uh, book, The the Ball and the Cross, and it says, um, Then what, asked Turnbull, very slowly, as he softly picked a flower? What is the difference between Christ and Satan? It's it's quite simple, replied Highlander. Christ descended into hell and Satan fell into it. Does it make much odds, asked the free thinker. It makes all the odds, said the other. One of them wanted to go up and went down and the other wanted to go down and went up. And so... That is exactly what we talked about last week. If you remember our message last week in the, uh, the first part of, uh, of kind of this, this whole paragraph here in verses eight, uh, 5 down through 8, we talked about um, Christ, Christ's descent as he came to earth, leaving all of the glories of heaven. So what is the difference between Christ and Satan really? What is, the, what is the difference between Jesus and all of us? Well, we want to go up, and oftentimes we end up going down, and Jesus wanted to go down, and as a result, he went up. Now, suppose you have been out of the country during the, the recent big game between Ohio State and that university up north, and you did not hear what the outcome was of the game. But you were concerned because you wanted to watch the game. And so you asked me to record the game for you so that when you came back, you could watch the game and you didn't want me to tell you the score or anything. So when you got back, suppose that I suggested that we place a $100 bet on the game. Would you take me up on the bet? (laughs) Only if you wanted to give me $100 would you take me up on the bet. And why is that? Because the outcome and the outcome of the game is is not in any doubt for me. But it is for you because you didn't see the game. But I already know. So betting against a game when the outcome is certain would be utter foolishness, wouldn't it? I mean, really. And yet millions of people but their eternal destiny against an outcome that God has declared absolutely certain. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and is ascended to the right hand of God the Father where he awaits all of his enemies to be made his footstools. The the psalmist said in Psalm 110 and verse 1. So God's word assures us that every knee will bow to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. And yet people go on betting their eternal destiny against the sure word of God, living as their own Lord and their own saviors, as if God's word were uncertain and not true at all. It sounds a little ridiculous, doesn't it? In our text tonight, the Apostle Paul assures us that because Jesus humbled himself through the cross, God has exalted him above all, so that all will submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. 
And so I want to set forth for you tonight from the text that we have in front of us, the, what the scripture teaches, and then I want to deal with some potential objections and then to that teaching, and then I want to offer a few applications. So three things, what the scripture teaches, what are potential objections to the teaching, and then some practical application. So the first thing that we see is the teaching. And there's a couple of things here. First of all, the crucified, risen, and ascended Jesus is now at the place of supremacy over all of creation. And Paul says in chapter 2 and verse 9, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name, the name which is above every name. The, the word therefore takes us back to verse 8. Anytime you see that word, you need to back up in what you're reading. And, and this, this whole paragraph from, from, from verse 5, actually uh, down through verse 11, is, is kind of contained, but we broke it into two parts. So we want to go backwards and, and read what was before this. Before the therefore in verse 9, we find in verse 8, it says, And being found in the appearance as a man, he's talking about Jesus Christ here, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even of the death of the cross, therefore, God. You see how that fits in there. And so because Jesus was willing to humble himself and, and, and bestow on him the name, God, God chose to bestow upon him the name that is above every name. God highly exalted him. And so as we saw last week, Jesus willingly left the height of heights laid aside his glory that he had with the Father from before the foundations of the world and took on the form of a lowly servant and adding genuine humility to his eternal destiny. His deity was not diminished, we taught last week, in, in, in any way. He only laid aside the voluntary use of his attributes. And so he was fully God, and yet at the same time fully man. And, and, and so it, his, his deity, if you would like to look at it this way, was, was in essence veiled during his earthly ministry, kind of like the eclipse of the sun. The sun's still there. We know it's there. It's the same way with Jesus. His, his deity was still there. But verse 9 tells us that, that after that time of veiling, God restored him to that place of supremacy. It says that he was highly exalted. Highly exalted is a word that occurs only here in the New Testament. It doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament, just here. And it could really have been translated super exalted. That, the height of where he was exalted... And so thus Jesus went from the height of heights to the depth of depth and back again to the height of heights. So he went from glory to hell and back to glory again. So Jesus did not exalt himself, although he could have done that. But the Father, you notice that the Father exalted him, thus putting his stamp 
of approval on Jesus' death as a as a satisf, as satisfying the Father's desire for a penalty for our sin. So as Peter proclaims to the Jewish Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5 and verses 30 and 31, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on the tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. That's pretty straightforward. Whom you murdered, he said. You hung him on a tree. The son of God. And and the exaltation of Jesus proves that he defeated Satan who could not keep Jesus in the grave. That's what Satan wanted to do. Satan Satan did not want Jesus to come out of that tomb. And he did everything he could to keep him in that tomb. And yet... Paul tells us in Second Corinthians or in, in Colossians chapter two, verses thirteen and fifteen, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him. He's talking about us, how we are alive with Christ, having forgiven you all trespasses, have, having wiped out the handwriting of requirement that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. That would be Satan and his demonic hordes. And he made a public spectacle of Satan, triumphing over him as he snatched that, that, that document stating our sins. And he nailed it to the cross and he said, there, it's finished. I've paid the price, and Jesus shed his blood that we might have eternal life. And so, so men did not exalt Jesus. They cast insult and abuse at him. They jeered at him, and they sped upon him, and they called him names. But the Father gave Jesus the name above all names, the name Lord, which is the equivalent of the Old Testament name of Yahweh. A name so sacred that the Hebrews would not even pronounce that name Yahweh. And so when they were, when they were reading scripture and they came to the name Yahweh, they would read Adonai. Adonai means Lord. So they would never say Yahweh. They'd always say Adonai. So Jesus is Lord means Jesus is Yahweh. Yahweh is the eternal God of the universe. So that is, that this is Paul's meaning becomes obvious when you compare Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9 with Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 20, uh, 22 and 23. He said, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath or confess. To whom? To God. Citing these verses, Paul says that every knee will bow to Jesus. You see, Jesus is God. 
He is Yahweh, Lord. Peter affirms the same truth on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and verses 33 through 36. He says, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Set up my right hand till I make your enemies your footstools. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assurance that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And thus any teaching, such as that of Jehovah Witnesses or Mormonism, which diminishes or denies the full deity of Jesus Christ, goes against the clear apostolic witness to Jesus and, and yeah, when you talk to Jehovah Witnesses, they'll say, yes, I believe Jesus. Yes, I believe this about Jesus and that about Jesus. But you ask them, do you believe that in Jesus dwells all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily? Well, no, he's not God. They are denying who Jesus is. They are no witness for Jesus. It's heresy. It's a false religion, and it needs to be looked on in that way. Some people say, well, they're good people. No, they're deceitful people. They're people that are bound by Satan on the way to hell, and Satan is trying to take as many people to hell with him as he can. The Jesus who humbled himself to the death on the cross has been raised up, ascended into heaven in place of the right hand of God the Father in the place of supremacy over all of creation. But then also we see that every creation will bow before and exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Every, every creature, every creature will bow before Jesus. Verse 10, Paul goes on to say there, in, uh, in verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth. So to emphasize the, the universality of Christ's exaltation and lordship, Paul added those words, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth. Is there any, any other place you could be? Pretty much covers it all. And so every, every created being will submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. First of all, in heaven, the angels will bow willingly before Jesus. They know that Jesus is God. The angels are, are awesome creatures of great power and glory. In fact, the mighty angel Gabriel, who brought visions from God to the, to the prophet Daniel, struck such fear into Daniel that he fell on his faith. So he, he came near where I stood, Daniel 8.17 says. And when he came, I was afraid and fell on my faith. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. On another occasion, when Daniel saw the angel, he grew, he grew pale and he lost all of his strength. When the angel 
angel's hand touched Daniel. It set him trembling on his hands and knees, and it rendered him speechless. In, in Daniel chapter 10 and, and verse 8, it says, Therefore, I was left alone when I saw the great vision, and no strength remained in me, for my vigor was, was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. This is at the vision of an angel. We get this idea that angels are cute little cuddly things with some wings that are flapping around a little bit. That is not an angel. Satan maybe, because Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. But angels were frightening beings. In verse 10, suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on my palms of my hands. Verse 15, when he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face towards the ground and became speechless. But I tell you what, that mighty Gabriel, as mighty as he is, and as, as, as beautiful as he is, bows before the Lord Jesus Christ. On earth, those who have, who have tasted God's sovereign grace will willingly bow before Jesus. Others, including many of the the mightiest people of this earth, the most powerful men who have ever lived, great kings and, and wealthy tycoons and evil drug lords, one day they will all bow, many of them against their will, but they will bow. Make no mistake about it. Every knee will bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. And those under the earth, well, Satan and all of his powerful demonic forces will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these demons have been been granted tremendous power. They're not omnipotent. They don't have the power that God does. Satan isn't able to do whatever he wants without the permission of God. He has no power of his own. He does not know our thoughts. He is not omnipresent here and at the same time on the other side of the world. Satan is in one place at one time. Now he's got a whole lot of demons that are scattered around. And and granted, he can move from one place to another rather rapidly. But Satan isn't God. He doesn't have the attributes of God. He, he wanted to think that he was like God, and he was going to ascend his throne above the throne of God, and God said, wait a minute. Boom. Slammed him to the ground. Just like that. And he thought he was powerful and glorious. But in the book of Job, the book of Job shows how Satan can move wicked people to commit slaughter. Sometimes we we look at what's going on in the world around us and we think, wow, there's a lot of terrible people out there. Yeah, there's a lot of terrible people that are under the control of Satan. And he can use wicked men to commit slaughter. He can cause a powerful wind to knock down houses. He can inflict a man with illnesses. He can do these things, but only through the permission of God. And so we see in Job chapter 1 and verse 15, 
It says when the, the Sabians raided them and took them away, indeed they have killed the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. That was a servant that came back to tell Job what had happened. In verse 19, and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they are dead, the children of Job. And I alone have escaped to tell you. This was all the activity of Satan. I think many of the things that happen in our world today are things that God will allow Satan to do for some purpose or another. We don't always know. Job didn't know why it was going on. But there was a day when Satan came to God, and God said, what have you been doing, Satan? He said, I've just been walking to and fro throughout the earth. And he said, have you considered my servant Job that he's a righteous man? And Satan looked at God and said, he doesn't worship you for naught. If you take everything away from him, he'll curse you to your face. You see, Satan doesn't understand how we can love God, how we can honor God and extol him, and even the face of turmoil in our life. Satan doesn't understand that. So Satan went out of the presence of the Lord. Verse 7 tells us in chapter 2. And struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. He allowed Satan to do all of the other things, but he said, leave, leave Job alone. And then finally he said, okay, you can, you can afflict him, but do not take his life. So you see, Satan doesn't even have the power to take our lives without the permission of God. Certain demons apparently have territorial powers over entire nations. And the book of Daniel makes this clear in Daniel chapter 10, then in, in verses 12 and 13. Then he said to me, this is the angel talking to Daniel, Do not fear, Daniel, from for the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. In other words, he said, God heard your prayer on that very first day. And I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. You know what that's saying? That's saying that, that, that Daniel prayed to God and God sent the angel down to give Daniel the message. But there was a battle that took place in the, in the heavenlies between the, the, the demons of Satan the kings and the princes of Persia, and this angel. And it went on for 21 days, and the angel was not able to prevail. And he said, behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, one of the, one of the higher angels in heaven, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. He's not talking about physical kings on earth. He was talking about spiritual beings that were in charge of the territory of Persia. But they all know that one day they will bow before Jesus as Lord. As powerful as they are, one day they will bow. 
Years ago, a well-known missionary, Don Richardson, had a kind of an interesting theory about hell. And, and sometimes I, I, I have a little problem with people's theories that are not biblically based. But it's an interesting theory that he had. He said that often hell is pictured as the, the demons and the damned blaspheming and cursing God and just screaming out horrible things to God for all eternity. But Don said this, he said, God isn't going to allow that to go on throughout eternity. Rather, those in hell will forever acknowledge the lordship of Jesus. And isn't that what the Bible's telling us? That every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord? So how could they be cursing God and screaming at God and calling him all kind of names when they're going to bow before Jesus is Lord. Interesting. He explains, explained by using the analogy of the threshold of pain. He said some people can endure only a small amount of pain before they will submit to anyone who is torturing them. And, and, and we know that as we've, we've seen uh, uh, men and, and, and women that were in military and how they were tortured and how some of them give in right away and some of them go for years and horrible treatment that they receive. Others can endure much more pain, he says, before they are broken. And he said, as a boy, you may have wrestled with a bigger boy and you got, who, who got you in a painful hold and continue to increase that pain on you until you would agree to say, I'm going to do this or that for your whatever. I mean, we used to have to tap out and say, uncle, you know. Okay, I give in. You win. But Don speculates that in hell, God is going to inflict on every person and on every demon, the amount of pain necessary to bring that being in submission. We're under distress. He cries out, Jesus is Lord. And if God were to lessen the pain and the person would again begin to defy God, God would increase the pain to the point where they would submit and then hold them at that level throughout eternity to where they are constantly acknowledging that Jesus is Lord. Now, I don't know that you can prove that theory by Scripture, but it does kind of make sense, doesn't it? They're going to confess that Jesus is Lord, and they'll be doing it because God will be putting the pressure on them. And they will bow their knee. So however God does it, there isn't a rebellious creature on earth or in hell who will not acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord. There's a lot of wicked people today that, that defy God. One day, one day they're going to bow. It will be a forced confession, but every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Amen. Every tongue will confess the Lordship of Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. In verse 12 there, uh, Paul, 
Paul says to us, uh, therefore, my beloved brethren, as you have already obeyed, not as in my presence only, but, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I, I, as we, we back up and, and we look again at verse 11, it says in that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, and then that we will work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We've already alluded to this fact, but, but also we need to understand that to honor Jesus is to honor the Father because Jesus is God. And so as Jesus told his Jewish critics in John chapter 5, he said, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. You see, there were, there were those religious leaders who were honoring God, the Father, but they weren't honoring Jesus. And so, so, so that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but pass from death into life. What, what's the opposite of that? If you don't acknowledge and honor me as God has, the Father has sent me, the only other alternative is separation from the Father. So because Jesus and the Father are one, to glorify Jesus is to glorify the, uh, the Father. And God's glory is the aim of his eternal purpose for his son, Jesus. So if people will not willingly give glory to God in this life, they will do so against their will throughout all eternity. So that's the teaching. Because Jesus humbled himself through the cross, God has exalted him far above all so that all will submit to Jesus as Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this teaching then brings up some objections, some questions for some people. There's two that I want to talk about here because of our time tonight. There's maybe many others. But the objection to the teaching, number one, if Jesus is exalted as Lord, why does he allow evil and suffering? Why doesn't he just squash all rebellion right now? Of course, this is, this is an age-old problem of evil that theologians and philosophers have wrestled with for, for many, many years. And so we can't ultimately answer that question. We really can't. Why did God allow evil and sin in the first place? Except to say it was part of his sovereign plan, and it results in a greater glory to God than any other plan? We don't really know. The Bible doesn't explain that part to us. To attribute evil to the fact that God gave freedom of choice to the angels and later to human being does not really solve the problem, does it? Because obviously God knew the sinful choices that would be made. He knew all things before he even created the world. He knew what people were going to do and the decisions that they were going to make. He even, he even ordained the cross before the foundation of the world. Before he, ever, before he ever created anything, he decreed that Jesus would die on the cross for our sins. 
And, and that gets into some pretty deep theological discussions when we begin to look at the decrees of God and, 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 and what, where you place certain things in the decree of God. But Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Before he created anything. He chose us. Revelation 13a. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So even before the world was created, Jesus was ordained to die on the cross for our sin. Before there was ever a sin committed, Jesus was already going to die. And so the lot of theological questions is, well, did sin, did sin come first and then God's decree for Jesus to die on the cross? Or did God decree that Jesus would die on the cross and then there was sin? And, then, and, and so we get in a lot, of, a lot of large debates there. We simply know from Scripture that before the foundation of the world, before, Je- before Jesus created anything... In the counsel of God the Father and Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit, Jesus was ordained to die on the cross. And yet the Bible clearly affirms that God is not responsible for sin, that he is apart from all sin. Some people say, well, then God must be the author of sin. If he knew before the foundations of the world that man was going to sin, why didn't he just stop them from sinning in the first place? Better yet, why did he even create any of us? Why didn't he just continue to be in fellowship with himself? You see, God didn't want a bunch of robots. God wanted people who love him and wanted to live for him. And so the Bible is very clear that God is not responsible for sin, that he is apart from all sin. 1 John 1, 5 is probably the most, most familiar to us. This is a message which we have heard of him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. There is no sin at all in Jesus. So the Bible is equally clear that the, the current reign of Satan as God of this world and, and the abundance of evil in no way disproves the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation makes it very clear that evil will abound and seemingly be winning the war right up to the very end. And saints will be martyred in Revelation 6, 9, and 11. Wicked Babylon will be prospering in Revelation 17 and 18 right up to the very end. And then in one day, in one hour, God's judgment will destroy Babylon. And you can see that in each one of those verses there in in chapter 18, verse 8, verse 10, verse 17, verse 19. It's like a broken record in one day, in one hour, in one day, in one hour. It's going to happen. That final book of the Bible shows that the fact that evil abounds does not in any way thwart the plan of God or the triumph of Jesus Christ. The Bible is also clear that any delay of God's judgment is only because of his great patience. People say, well, why doesn't God judge these wicked people? Why didn't he judge us before we accepted Christ as our Savior? Why didn't he just go ahead and send us to hell the first time we actually 
did something really bad. You see, God, God is patient, not wanting any to perish. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the Bible acknowledges the presence of evil, but also clearly affirms that there is no, no dis, there is no, in no way disproves the Lordship of Jesus, who is God's perfect timing. He will su- suppress all evil and reign in absolute triumph in the end. Leads us to the second question of objection, and I know I'm not giving you too many answers there. But the second question is, how can we be sure that Jesus will ultimately triumph, especially when we see the evil in our day seems to be winning? There's wickedness going on all over the place. Are you sure this plan is going to work? Well, as I pointed out, Scripture is clear that evil will seemingly be winning right up until the final hour, that one day, that one hour, and it'll all be done when God's axe will finally fall. But how can we know that those prophecies about the future are going to come true? Well, look at the many prophecies that were fulfilled in the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter mentions how the Old Testament prophets sought to know what time or manner this was going to happen in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 11. The Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the suffering of Christ and the glory to follow. The risen Jesus told the men on the road to Emmaus on that first Easter Sunday morning in Luke chapter 24, all foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to these two men the things concerning himself in Scripture. And their hearts, they realized later, burned within them as Jesus taught them. They did not know it was Jesus until he sat down at the table that night with them and he broke the bread. And then he was gone. And they got up and they ran back to Jerusalem to tell the apostles that they had seen the risen Christ. So not only do we have the witness of the Old Testament prophets who spoke of Christ's suffering and and glory, but also the witness of many of the apostles, men of integrity, who saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who saw him ascend into heaven, who heard the witness of the angels to his promised second coming in Acts chapter 1 and verse 11. Why do you stand here looking into heaven at this Jesus, this same Jesus who was just taken up into the clouds, will one day come again? The angels told him that. And so those witnesses went out and gave their very lives based upon what they had seen and what they had heard. And we can trust their witness. So we can know that even though it seems as if evil is winning in our day, when we watch the news and everything that's going on in the world around us, Jesus is risen and he is Lord And one day every knee will bow and confess him as the Lord of all creation. His kingdom will be established. 
And every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow before Jesus as the sovereign Lord. Real, real quickly, some applications to this teaching. We've got four things we'll finish real quickly here. Number one, the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ is an encouragement to our, to our humility. This is, this is Paul's primary application of this context. If Jesus is the exalted Lord, we've got to dethrone ourselves. We've got to get off the throne. We are to follow our Lord in his example of laying aside his rights and taking the form of the servant. Because he humbled himself, God highly exalted him. Jesus taught for everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted, Luke 14, 11. It would be wrong to think that Jesus was motivated to go to the cross by the thought of being exalted afterwards be wrong to think that. He went to the cross out of love and obedience to the Father and loved love for you and me. But being exalted was his reward. And our, our motivation to humble ourselves should be the love of, that we have for God and others because of his great love for us. But if we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, we will be exalted he will exalt us at the proper time, 1 Peter 5, 6 tells us. The second thing, exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ, is an encouragement in trials, in times of trials we go through. Jesus endured the cross, and the Father strengthened him and gave him grace for that awful ordeal. The cross, the resurrection, the subsequent exaltation of Jesus shows that God can, can transform the most grotesque of human sins against us into the greatest of divine triumphs. Any suffering or tragedy that we face can redound to the glory of God. The great British preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon knew, his, knew this encouragement from Christ's exaltation. When he was 22 years old, 22 years old, his popularity had spread throughout all of London. Thousands of people were flocking to hear this man preach. To accommodate the crowds, his church rented the Surrey Garden Music Hall, which seated at least 10,000 people. The opening service there on Sunday, October 19, 1856, word spread, and when they opened the building, people crowded in, taking every seat, packing the aisles, the stairways, while thousands of thousand more people were outside standing around the building hoping to hear through the open windows what this preacher had to say. And when Spurgeon arrived and he saw the crowd, he was almost overwhelmed. The service began and everything seemed to be going well. But just after Spurgeon began to pray, the place was thrown into entire confusion. Someone, someone in the gallery shouted, fire! And another on the ground floor shouted, the balconies are falling! And a third voice cried out, the whole place is collapsing around us! And people panicked and they began rushing for, for the exits, but there was no room. And some fell through the balcony railing to the floor below. And, and as some rushed out the door, the crowd that was standing on the outside didn't know what was going on. And they saw that as their opportunity to get seats. And so they began rushing in as people were rushing out of the place. 
And Spurgeon tried to calm everyone down, but before it was all over, seven people had been crushed to death and 28 others had been seriously wounded. And the whole thing had been orchestrated by enemies who were jealous of Spurgeon's popularity and they wanted to cause, they, they, they wanted a cause to bring him down. And so Spurgeon himself was devastated by what happened, so much so that a man who knew him well reported that 25 years later, when the event came up, Spurgeon was overcome with emotion. His critics used the event to bring all sorts of slander against this young preacher, 22 years old. And Spurgeon withdrew for over a week, unable to preach or to do anything. But as he walked in a friend's garden, our text that we had tonight flashed into his mind. Therefore, also God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And as he meditated on the exalted Christ, he found strength. And when he returned to the pulpit, he spoke on these very verses. And so let them comfort you in times of tragedy. Number three, the exaltation of the Lord Jesus is an encouragement to evangelism. The fact that every knee shall bow before Jesus as Lord, either willingly in this life or forcibly in the day of judgment, should impel us to warn others to flee from the wrath to come. The ultimate lordship of Jesus is the culmination of what God is doing in history, and we have a part in that work of his kingdom. Lost people need to see the serious consequences if they continue in their rebellion against God. They need to repent of their sin and trust in Christ as Savior and yield to him as Lord. And then finally, the exaltation of the Lord Jesus is an encouragement to salvation. In other words, if you have never bowed before Jesus as Lord and Savior, don't delay. Today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation. Tomorrow, you may face him in judgment. Believing in Christ as your Savior and Lord requires that you humble yourself because you must let go of the, the pride notion that you can save yourself. There's so many religions out there say, well, you need to be baptized. You need to give your money. You need to walk an aisle. You need to do this. You need to do that. You can't save yourself. Your good works are not enough. Only Christ can save. So let go of any thought that you're good enough for the holy God. Turn your sin from your sin and flee to Jesus. Isaiah 45, 22 to 25 said, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall be glory and, and shall glory. And so the outcome is certain. The question is, on which side are you?